morning and welcome to Rising. We have a fantastic and exciting show for you today. Two adjectives, especially since I have the great Katie Halper in studio with me. Katie, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me yeah, live. Love to have you here in the nation's capital. What do we have on deck today? Well, Brianna Joy Gray will join us later in the show, but we have kind of a big lineup today. Right, mm -hmm. Robbie? Yes, we do. Senator Rand Paul will be with us to break down yesterday's hearings on the type of research at the heart of the lab leak theory debate, gain of function. We also have Andrew Yang joining us today to discuss his new forward party. First, though, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi wrapped up her trip to Taiwan yesterday, and despite much pushback from the White House and many in Congress about the trip, Pelosi moved forward with it anyway. While there, she said the U.S., quote, will not abandon Taiwan. Beijing did not take kindly to Pelosi's visit. On Thursday, China held military exercises, including firing missiles into the sea. Now, reporting from the South China Post reveals that Taiwan hired former U.S. politicians Bob Dole and Tom Daschle to strengthen ties between Taiwan and the U.S., but you probably won't see that in the mainstream media narrative, as journalist David Sirota points out, tweeting, Reading all the media coverage of Pelosi's Taiwan trip, I'm noticing there's no mention of Dick Gephardt and Tom Daschle now being paid lobbyists for Taiwan. So this is, uh, you know, this is another case of the, the mainstream media, very hawkish, very right. pro-intervention, uh, very, uh, you know, ma uh, uh, mimicking the bipartisan consensus that there should be a more militaristic posturing toward. China and Taiwan. Um, you know, we haven't uh, had you on to discuss this yet. What do you make of Pelosi's visit, just in general? Like, why is she doing this? I mean, I think it's kind of embarrassing, honestly. It just looks like such an unnecessary political move and such a posture. I mean, I don't think Americans care, mm -hmm. really, what the American position is, the foreign policy position is vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. I don't think that's something that Americans care about. And it definitely seems like a, an unnecessarily and foolishly aggressive move. I mean, you even had Joe Biden advising against it. Right. That's what's so weird about it. Joe Biden does not appear to have wanted Pelosi to do this. Right. But she did do it. And can't he call her and say, you are not allowed to do this? Well, like, that's the thing. I know. He seemed, you know, Biden was the guy who was able to apparently work a across the aisle, reach across the aisle. He could work with Republicans. He could work with Democrats. But he can't even work with Democrats. Like, we see this with Joe Manchin. I mean, right? Didn't mm -hmm. He's the guy who beat the socialists. He was the guy who beat the guy who apparently didn't know how to, the system works. Of course, that's not true. Obviously, I very much disagree with that. And Bernie's nickname was the Amendment King because mm -hmm. he got so much done through amendments. And he knows how to work across the aisle. And he has an amazing like, crossover appeal in terms of voters as well. So to me, this is just another example of Biden, uh, the myth of Biden being this pragmatist who knows how to work the system. Like he doesn't. He can't even get his own people in order. He can't even get his own people in line. I mean, Joe Manchin, did you see this? I don't know if you guys showed this on the Hill, but uh, he won't even commit to voting for, uh, right. for Joe Biden or endorsing him. He won't even endorse the Democrats keeping control. Right. I, I'm starting to think that uh, Joe Biden's political career might be effectively over after the midterms. I was really hesitant uh, to to endorse that kind of pundit thinking because uh, political prognosticators love to say sure. bold, crazy things are going to happen right. when usually just the boring thing happens. Yeah. A, a president not running for re-election, uh, if they're eligible for re-election, 
is so historically unprecedented right. in modern times. We have to go back to like Lyndon B. Johnson yeah. to find anything even resembling this. It seems so unlikely to me, uh, and yet he just has. He has no control over the party. We have no idea what his foreign policy even is. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a schizophrenic foreign policy. Pull out of Afghanistan, get more involved in the Ukraine, right. well, well, and, then, and then have this escalated conflict uh, with, with China. And you're right that the through line is that the American people don't want any of this. Yeah, they There's don't. no mandate to do any of this. Right. I mean, and also seeing the prices rise here because we're escalating this proxy war in Ukraine, mm -hmm. that it's clear that the, the motive here is to bleed Russia. It's not to actually save the lives of Ukrainians, because if it were, then the United States would be prioritizing diplomacy and negotiation. And it's very scary and disturbing to me to see how cavalier the United States is and the West in general. And, you know, Boris Johnson, RIP, but <laughs> Boris Johnson, of course, told Zelensky not to negotiate with Putin. And this is just uh, a terrible bipartisan consensus around this and watching people be happy sacrificing Ukrainians as cannon fodder. Obviously, both sides are taking hits and their casualties and deaths on both sides, and it's really tragic and it's unnecessary. And all of this is for like geopolitical strategic reasons. I mean, Lloyd uh, Austin said that the point was to weaken Putin. And this is not what Americans want. Americans don't want uh, us to be funding this war. Again, it is a proxy war. We have Adam Schiff saying we're fighting them over there, so we don't have to fight them over here. I don't know. Maybe. And privately, does our government have any faith even in Zelensky? I, that, there was a, a really uh, telling uh, column from Thomas Friedman, New York Times columnist yeah. on foreign policy, who I don't usually enjoy his writing very much. It was, this was a good column. Yeah. And he, he said in there that he understands by his contacts in the government, privately, they do not have faith in Zelensky, which is not surprising because he's now governing in a very illiberal way, yeah. uh, banning members of opposition parties, uh, centralizing control of the media, doing all sorts of things that uh, are, are the, the kinds of characteristics of governments that we purport to oppose. Right, exactly. I mean, we're constantly up. criticizing Putin for that kind of stuff. And now we're propping up a guy who is doing the exact things that we claim are authoritarian and un autocratic. Yeah. I mean, also, it, he's in this hard position because there is this very hard right, um, not, not that powerful in numbers, but very powerful politically. And, you know, they've threatened him. And you mm -hmm. have the Azov Battalion, which is basically a Nazi and or neo-Nazi uh, battalion within the Ukrainian army. Uh, there's all these stories that you'll never hear about in mainstream media about how all the weapons are going missing. In fact, on Useful Idiots, we had Lindsay Snell come on, who just did a report. She was there in Ukraine. And of course, you'd think that all the media would be wanting to talk to this person who was reporting from Ukraine. She has all these stories about people, foreign, like foreign fighters who went over there, and extremely interesting stories mm -hmm. ranging from people complaining about the corruption to you know, being forced to fight without uh, the, white, the right weaponry, you know, being forced to fight in these alleged like, shelters that are just open air trenches in the woods. Um, but it's it's really I think uh, I think the media should be ashamed honestly for ignoring that side of the conflict. How many how many times have we had <laughs> giving people weapons? I know. Then they end up in wrong hands, right. or, or the the diplomatic reality changes uh, changes a little bit, and then suddenly these people are our enemies again, and right. we've armed them. Yeah, and it's just I mean it's I don't it's not that I don't want to take away the agency of Ukrainians, and my heart does mm -hmm. go out to Ukrainians, but they're clearly being used. Right. Or the agency of the Russian government, right? They oh, yeah, should right, not have right. done yes. this. No, I'm not, I'm not yeah. defending the invasion, but it's also like, okay, 
it happened. Uh, I don't think the United States did anything particularly to prevent it from happening. I don't think they actually were upset that it happened. And in fact, when you go back and look at what um, Ned Price or uh, uh, Blinken or Biden were saying before the fact, they didn't. They were like, of course, vilifying Russia, but they didn't seem very nervous about it happening. Mm -hmm. I think they knew that they were letting it happen because they weren't engaging in the diplomacy. That is what you engage in. And every war ends through negotiation and diplomacy. So the question is, why are they letting this drag on? And they're clearly invested in it dragging on. And they keep saying it's going to be a long haul, like buckle up and sit back and relax and enjoy the show, basically, is what they're telling Americans. Mm. Well, back to Taiwan for oh, one, yeah. for one sure. minute. Um, where do you think this goes uh, from here? I, I guess this visit is going to be, for, uh, from Pelosi's standpoint, a success. Whatever legacy building kind of nonsense she's trying to do. Yeah, there she is. Yeah. You know, she came off the plane. Uh, she got her, mo you know, she's, uh, this is a historic visit given right. how long it's been since an official of this right. uh, rank I know she, she gets visited. to join the ranks of Newt Gingrich. Mazel tov, Nancy. <laughs> you must be really happy. You and Newt Gingrich shared the same legacy. Yeah. I'm just upset she didn't, like, rip up a speech. I want her to go into China and stand behind the president and rip up some speech, like some Chinese Do a dramatic, party. like, yeah, you know, yeah, she does tear, that. Down, tear, tear down, down this wall. Yeah, yeah. Although that would be the, the, yeah, the Chinese, I don't know. the Great right. Wall of China, that the historical. Been, yeah, that, yeah, that, that would be very offensive. No, no. That would have been offensive. <laughs> we want that wall first, to stay. Yeah, we want that wall to, to stay. <laughs> Build that wall. They already did it. So none of the usual <laughs> uh, slogans work here. But uh, I do, you know, she or she could have done that cla the ironic clap that she did uh, with Trump that, you know, pseudo-feminist claimed was like the biggest boss girl moment, uh, oh, slay queen moment. Yeah, slay queen, yeah. I mean, these, work girl the, boss. The funny thing is these these women are slay queens, right? Like yeah. they are, they're hawkish and they like In a lot droning, of slaying. Yeah, right. slay queens <laughs> via droning, yeah. Or shattering that glass ceiling uh, through uh, droning and bombing, yeah. Through unauthorized war in foreign countries. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well done, Nancy Pelosi. Well done, uh, I indeed. can sleep better at night knowing that you did that with Taiwan, mm. I guess. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, I admit it. I was skeptical at first, but it's getting to the point where if I were a betting woman, I bet it all on Biden not running for a second term in 2024. Now, I feel like my former skepticism was well-founded. The pull of incumbency is powerful. Only five presidents ever have declined to run for a second term. James Polk, president from 1845 to 1849, ran on the promise that he would not run for re-election. He ran on four specific goals, two of which were annexing Oregon and snatching California from Mexico. He achieved all four goals within four years, kept his word, and did not run again. Rutherford B. Hayes made a similar promise to be a one-term president and fulfilled it. James Buchanan managed to get on the wrong side of both Republican abolitionists and Northern Democrats in those touchy pre-Civil War years and simply opted out of the drama. Calvin Coolidge became president after Warren Harding's death in office and had already served six years at the end of his first term. He opted out of his second term because, in addition to weathering the loss of his young son, he felt that 10 years for a president was just too long. And similarly, LBJ felt that six years were enough after serving out half of JFK's term and facing public outrage over the Vietnam War. He simply opted out. Of those five former presidents, only three served neat four-year terms. And two of those three ran and were elected on the condition of being a one-term president. As if Biden were to step down, it would represent an outlier case. And it wouldn't just be historically aberrant, 
It would be a departure from Biden's character. Joe Biden is a man who has run for president three times. He was elected to the Senate at age 29 and has been grasping at the Oval for as long as I've been alive. This is not a man who I ever imagined would give up on that Tony 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue address without a fight. But Biden's unprecedented age and more importantly, his visible decline since the Obama years immediately gave rise to speculation that he would be a one-term president, even during the primary. Although 2020 has been largely memory hold, the question of Biden's physical and mental stamina was raised briefly by a couple of Democratic primary candidates. Remember this? They do not have to buy in. They do not have to buy in. You just said that. You just said that two minutes ago. You just said two minutes ago that they would have to buy in. You said they would have to buy in. to buy in. If you qualify for Are you forgetting what you said two minutes ago? You said just two minutes ago? I mean, I can't believe that you said two minutes ago that they had to buy in, and now you're saying they don't have to buy. You're forgetting that. Now, the Democratic Party seems to have put the kibosh on that line of attack, protecting the man who seemed likely to be the chosen establishment pick, but not before Castro got a little support from Cory Booker. There are Do you want to see moments where you listen to Joe Biden and you just wonder? I think that we are at a tough point right now because there's a lot of people who are concerned about uh, Joe Biden's ability to carry the ball all the way across the end line without fumbling. And I think that Castro has some really uh, legitimate concerns about can he be someone in a long, grueling campaign uh, that can get the ball over the line? And he has every right to call that out. Uh, for his trouble, by the way, Booker was out by the next debate and Castro was done by the debate after that. No one puts Biden in a corner. <laughs> but while it was considered uncouth to discuss Biden's longevity back in 2019, now it seems that Democrats are very conspicuously going out of their way not to answer whether or not they would support a Biden run in 2024. Here's Cori Bush ducking the question last week. Do you want to see Joe Biden run for a second term? Yeah, I, you know. Uh, that's an easy question. It's not going to take long. Do you want to see Joe I, Biden? I don't want to answer that question because we have not. That's not. Yeah, I don't want to answer that question. Okay. Um, I mean, he's the president. And he has the right to to run for a second term. Absolutely. That's but, right but I don't want to. I don't. I don't want. I'd rather you not do that okay, answer. So you got like two minutes to be in the car. Yeah, I know. Right. I got to get to the. Well, thanks very much. Do you want to see Joe Biden run for a second term? <laughs> what yeah. an answer! Like, if I asked my boyfriend, "Am I a good cook?" and he replied. You certainly have the right to cook. <laughs> I'd consider hanging up my apron. Now, Cori Bush isn't the only one. Earlier this week, two top Democratic Congress members declined to say whether Biden should run in 2024. Unlike Bush's, uh, Bush's remarks, comments of this sort from establishment Dems, Carolyn Maloney and Jerry Nadler, couldn't be dismissed as just salty, progressive peak. During a debate between the two Congress members, who, due to redistricting, are both running for the same seat now, Nadler answered that it was too early to say and that it doesn't serve the purpose of the Democratic Party to deal with that until after midterms. That's a line I've been hearing a lot from Democratic Party insiders, including the Pod Save America crew. It's a discussion for after midterms. Maloney was more blunt, saying, quote, I don't believe he's running for re-election. And this is Joe Manchin just this past Tuesday. 
Let me ask you to expand on something you were discussing with Chuck Todd on Meet the Press on Sunday, where you said that you, well, you did not say whether you would back Democrats in the midterms, and you said you would decide based on individual candidates, I think. Uh, would you support Joe Biden if he's on the ticket in 2024 as the Democratic president Andrew, seeking re-election? Let, let me make it very, very clear. This is the most, one of the most important pieces of legislation in my lifetime that we've ever done to have energy security, to fight inflation, to help our geopolitical well, allies you, around the world. And you've worked with the Democratic White House on it. And, and that's exactly, and I'm working with it. I'm very appreciative. They are. But for me to bring the politics into it, oh, this is a Democrat bill. Oh, this is an anti-Republican bill. This is not. I'm not talking about the 2022 election and 2024. I have no control over those elections, and I'm not going to talk about them that will skew one of the greatest pieces of legislation, and I'm very appreciative that the president has seen it, he's approved it, he supports it. God bless him for that. This is great for America. Can't we do something for our country without having well, to bring he, politics into it? Well, you're, That's you're all a I'm Democratic. not going to talk about. You're a Democratic senator. I'm just asking you whether you would support your own, the leader of your own party. I'm talking about, I'm supporting this bill, Andrea. (laughs) Talk about a filibuster. Now, this postural whiplash after years of Democrats insisting that there's nothing to see here when it comes to Biden's ability to lead the country amounts to a blinking vague sign saying he's out, folks. Now, of course, this has provoked a whole host of op-eds about who the Democratic presidential candidate will be. Latest among them is Michael Starr Hopkins' op-ed at The Hill, which argues that AOC is the Democrats' best shot against Trump in 2024. Starr cites AOC's ability to relate to her supporters and the simplicity with which she talks about everyday struggles, as well as her independence from corporate money and ability to raise huge sums through grassroots fundraising. She isn't afraid to lose, he writes, and Democrats want a fighter, not a politician, someone who punches back and isn't afraid to say what they mean. But is that person AOC? It remains to be seen whether progressives trust her enough to pick up the progressive mantle dropped by Bernie at the end of his 2020 campaign. Although mainstream liberal coverage of AOC has consistently praised her poise, her fluency on evolving cultural issues, and her viral call-outs of the establishment, a not insignificant portion of the left has been mounting substantive criticisms of AOC since the end of the Bernie campaign. First came unconfirmed rumors that she had distanced herself from Bernie after his campaign touted a soft endorsement by popular podcaster Joe Rogan. When AOC was first elected, progressives cheered her choice to protest with climate youths in Nancy Pelosi's office. But the week she was sworn in for her second term, Well, that Newsweek was marred somewhat by her dismissive response to a grassroots campaign aimed at pushing progressive House members to not vote for Nancy Pelosi to be Speaker of the House, at least not without getting something in return. The narrow margins in the House meant that the squad had the power to keep the third most powerful Democrat in the country out of her leadership seat. And many progressives, including myself, Crystal Ball, Cornel West, Jimmy Dore, Chris Hedges, and Katie Halper among them, saw this as one of the last opportunities to extract anything for working people before Biden's brand of neoliberal do-nothingness set in. She and other squad members declined to participate, insisting that political capital would be better spent over the fight for 15. And we all know how the fight for 15 went. AOC fought valiantly to keep the Build Back Better bill from being bifurcated, 
predicting, rightly, that corporatists in both parties would throw the human infrastructure bill that provided substantive relief for American families under the bus. But she declined to call out progressive caucus leader Pramila Jayapal for pressuring her caucus not to use their leverage to keep the incredibly popular $15 minimum wage in the American Rescue Plan. And although Nancy Pelosi literally made AOC cry on the House floor as she leaned on her to vote for additional Iron Dome funding for Israel, AOC has yet to call Pelosi out as an enemy of working people's interests. AOC has been criticized for taking a number of votes that are out of step with her professed anti-war beliefs, including voting for military aid to Ukraine. She also gave vague answers when asked about her support for Julian Assange in December of 2020. That's something Marjorie Taylor Greene picked up on recently in her criticism of AOC. And who can forget how AOC's 2021 Met Gala dress became a Rorschach test, dividing the entire internet. Now, certainly AOC has a long list of accomplishments under her belt as well. And compared to most of the other names being bandied about to replace Biden, she's an obvious star. But these past two years have been a litmus test for many progressives who are deciding not between progressive candidates or even Democratic centrists, but whether to invest in electoral politics at all. 2018 proved that progressives can win but 2021 showed how disappointing they can be once they're in Congress. If progressives weren't willing to pull a mansion, to use the narrow margins in the House to vote as a block and hold up must-pass legislation until the corporate duopoly finally served the public, why should the public invest in electing more squad members? Why should they trust a squad member for president? These are the questions that AOC, Ro Connor, and any other progressive hopeful will have to answer. Now, certainly, many Democratic voters and progressives still hold a positive view of AOC, perhaps the majority of them. But her favorability polls tell a more ambiguous story. 35% of respondents in a May poll found her to be favorable or somewhat favorable. 33% had an unfavorable view of AOC, with another 9% finding her somewhat unfavorable. Now, this isn't an exact science, but what I think you're seeing here is that AOC isn't quite the Bernie-style figure Starr thinks she is. Bernie's favorability rating is 44% favorable or somewhat favorable. And whereas even his detractors think he's an honest broker, AOC is played by claims that her progressivism is largely performative. Should she have worn the dress? Should she have kept her hands behind her back when she was escorted away from an abortion protest last month, despite not being handcuffed? Will she be willing to take a stand against Pelosi the way Sanders has historically stood against the establishment? Now, Senator Sanders is not immune from criticisms from the left, but unlike AOC, Bernie's long record has earned him more benefit of the doubt, rightly or wrongly. If AOC does choose to run, can she be successful without the support of the independent left media, which is currently divided on the question of whether there's any point in voting for any Democrats at all? Now, I covered AOC's first day in Congress, the protest at Pelosi's office, as a journalist for The Intercept. I interviewed her later that year at South by Southwest and found her to be one of the most agile and principled speakers I'd had the pleasure of ever interviewing at the time. My journalism career had started with the critique of how identity politics had been weaponized by the Democratic Party in these really insidious ways that actually hurt the groups they claimed to be wanting to protect. And AOC's willingness to join in on that critique and even expand on it was impressive to me. 
especially back in 2018-2019 when Democrats were deeply invested in the idea that demographic changes, not policy, were the salvation of the party. That's why I do believe that AOC has the capacity to be an extraordinary presidential candidate someday, but only if she returns to the politics that got her elected. Principled, broad, accessible language that sounded more Bernie than Barnard College. Only if she avoids the trappings of a corporate media infrastructure that validates some of her worst instincts and couldn't care less about the working people which got her in this game to begin with. If Biden indeed does not run, progressives will certainly be looking for a bannerman. And I promise you, his name is not Mayor Pete. The mantle is there for AOC to pick up, but first she'll have to prove to progressives that she's more leftist than Democrat. And I'm so glad you're here for this, Katie, because few people have been on this journey and been playing inside baseball with the left uh, the way that you have. What do you think of this, this idea that it could be, it could be AOC? I mean, I think that I basically uh, co-sign what you said, and I think that unlike Bernie, who, you know, one of the most appealing things about Bernie is that, as you mentioned, everyone, most people who are remotely honest, who have any ethical bones in their body, know the guy's honest mm -hmm. and means what he says and is consistent. I think you're right that AOC has some catch-up to do in terms of policy, consistency, and principle. Uh, I think that, you know, obviously she's much younger. Uh, I think that we'll have to see what happens. What, what do you think? I mean, who else? Look, I, I want to entertain it because yeah. the bench is shallow. Yeah. The de Democratic bench broadly is shallow, and as a leftist who has, I would argue, a slightly higher litmus test, <laughs> it's even shallower than that. And I do, like I said, I think that she has a lot of things going for her. I was, you know, a huge supporter of her and followed her career very closely. I was basically on the AOC beat at The Intercept uh, for the first year that I worked in this milieu. But it's hard for me not to observe these kinds of shifts. And I am like, I feel like Tyra Banks. I'm rooting for her. I'm rooting for her. But it's not entirely clear to me she that she has She has a work, uh, the uh, crossover appeal with sort of like working class people who liked that. Bernie and then Trump in a, a way that is clearly personality based. Absolutely I think. not. Right. She yeah. clearly, I think she could. Be she a, could. But yeah. she doesn't. Be a she currently. Have to, she'd have to make some adjustments. It, it yeah. feels to me like she's been in a world, an immediate infrastructure that really does validate the bad instincts, the instincts to say, I'm going to, I didn't like the dress. I'm sorry. I confess. This, right. this, I, don't, I didn't take it to be this horrible thing that right. some people did, but I, I thought it was a bad political move to wear the dress to the Met Gala. I don't think it's a good political move to take some of the, to lean into some of the, the academic language, the stuff, approach. like it's that, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And if it's a one-off, I wouldn't mind yeah. it. But I think in the aggregate, she has aligned herself with a lot of the kind of neoliberal interests that put us off of those kind of politicians to begin with. Can she claw it back? I'd love to see I will. I will say, like you, I am now resistant, uh, uh, reluctantly coming around to an idea I was resistant toward initially that Biden might not run again. I, I really thought that was yeah. kind of crazy thinking, and I'm hearing it from enough people, yeah. enough credible people, I'm not sure. On June 18th, children five years old and younger became eligible to get the COVID-19 vaccine. And the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention wasted no time pushing parents to get their kids vaccinated. But a closer look at CDC data shows that as of July 20th, less than 3% of kids five years or younger have gotten at least one dose. 
KFF published that analysis, and it shows just two weeks after the Food and Drug Administration cleared this age group for vaccinations, their vaccination rate peaked. Meanwhile, media headlines like parents anxious to vaccinate children, the agony of parents with children under age dominate the narrative on this issue. Here to discuss is writer David Zweig and author of the nonfiction book, Invisibles. Welcome, David. Hi, thanks for having me. So this is uh, interesting. I saw you point out on social media that, uh, you know, for all the expectations that health officials had, that there would be, you know, massive interest in getting young children vaccinated, didn't, it doesn't look like it's happening. Yeah, it definitely appears that there is a wide chasm between what the CDC and other um, health officials had predicted and had wanted to happen and from what has actually happened. The last I checked, I think it was around a week ago from the AAP, um, I think it was something like 4.7% of children under the age of five uh, were vaccinated. I mean, that is, it's a pretty extraordinary figure. Yeah, do you think this was a, a failing on sort of public health officials or, or you know, people recommending strategies to not anticipate that the demand wouldn't be what they thought it would be? Um, I wouldn't describe it as a failing in that sense. I think what this shows is that there's a, a pretty significant disconnect between what the majority of the public or parents believe um, about the necessity of the COVID vaccine for their children. Even the next um, age bracket up, the five to 11 year olds, that's been, uh, that's been you know, approved for, I don't know how many months at this point. And um, I think that's only at something like 37%. So, I mean, that is really, really low, even that, you know, it's not as low as the 4.7% for the youngest kids, but um, there's a real disconnect here. And I think people in public health probably need to ask themselves what has gone wrong and one thing that I'm quite certain is not part of it is, or it's certainly not the driver of it, is the notion that it's just the bad people, the, the crazy anti-vax conspiracists, because those people aren't persuading, uh, you know, 95% of the public. <laughs> so you tweet a study in media framing, and then you tweet out these screenshots uh, that I referred to in the intro, parents anxious to vaccinate young children, describe an agonizing weight. My kids can't get vaccinated yet, and I'm barely keeping it together. The agony of parents with kids under five. So you're, su you're suggesting there's a media framing on this. What do you think is motivating this framing, and what, how would you describe what this framing is? Well, I mean, it, you know, from, from the, the headlines that I tweeted out, there clearly, just as there is a disconnect from the public health authorities, from what the majority of the public and majority of parents are thinking. And again, we're talking about 95%. Um, so majority is you know, a pretty significant uh, understatement. There's also a disconnect between the media and a large, and a large percentage of the public as well. And it's not, you know, I, I can't speak to motive. I, can't, I don't know what's going through the minds of the reporters and editors who are writing these articles and these headlines, but they clearly are, had a particular story they wanted to tell. We certainly know that writing a story where you're talking about the agony of waiting was highly anecdotal. Um, now, that doesn't mean it's not newsworthy, but when you are doing reporting on an anecdote, it's really important to place that anecdote in context. 
And as you can see from the headlines, they don't do that. They certainly, they are um, designed to give the impression of a larger uh, type of um, atmosphere. And the impression that they gave was wildly, wildly inaccurate. And it has to do with, you know, the fact that it, I guess I would gather that a, a lot of parents, you know, 90, upwards of more than 90 percent of them ha- understand and internalize the true scientific fact that there is extreme you know, age discrimination with COVID, that, that very young kids have not had, um, uh, you know, barring exceptional circumstances, uh, immunocompromised conditions, uh, maybe morbid obesity, you know, some some kids certainly can be at risk of COVID if they have other health issues going on. But if you you look at the statistics, you know, by and large, this is not, it's, it's hard to find, in fact, it's hard to find uh, significantly better outcomes in terms of health for kids who get vaccinated, which is not that the vaccine is doing anything wrong. It's just they, they would have, in, in, you know, overwhelming number of cases, they would have been fine without it too, just because it doesn't impact this category it very, very badly. And, and that's something I think that clearly most parents understand that maybe the media has missed or doesn't want to talk about for some reason. Yeah, it, it is a fascinating sort of case study, um, if someone wants to write a dissertation on this, and to view the media coverage leading up to the different pediatric vaccine approvals and then look at the actual um, pediatric uptake. Of, of the vaccines themselves and to see that disconnect. And I think that most parents have intuit that when they see their children have already had COVID, they're aware of the data, at least you know, in the abstract. Obviously, everyone's not following this stuff super closely and reading you know, the, uh, the trials from the different vaccines and looking at the latest studies, but they have an intuitive sense there is you know, this is about empiricism. It's about empirical reality. And when you've seen everyone you know already have COVID, you've seen every single child who already had it and it was mild, they intuit. There is, I think, the sense that most people have in their mind, which is first, do no harm. This doesn't mean getting vaccinated is a bad idea um, for children, and, and I'm not suggesting that. But what I am suggesting is that clearly the evidence shows that most parents are saying, look, I. I understand there is an extraordinary age stratification, you know, regarding risk. And that was even before getting COVID. Now my child has already had COVID and we know way upwards of 75% of kids have already been infected. And that's going and being infected before is going to reduce the likelihood of infection again or the likelihood of severe disease. So you took something that was already, thankfully, incredibly low, and then you made it even lower by already um, being infected before. And the average parent clearly um, views this as just something that's not urgent for their, for their children at this time. And, you know, the idea that some school districts, for instance, were going to, you know, require uh, some level of vaccination at a, a certain age group, um, I, don't, I don't know exactly. There might be somewhere in the country. I don't know that it's the case that anyone is requiring for this age group. But I know in D.C. schools, they are requiring uh, in the 12 and older category to be vaccinated to, re- to come to school in the fall. And something like 40 percent of um, African-American uh, students, children in that age group in the district are not vaccinated and are thus at risk of not being able to return to school. And it's like, <laughs> you know, not not having the social stability of going to school is by far, it's not even close 
worse for their uh, their you know uh, achievement in math and reading, their social skills, their their likelihood to not fall into crime. It, it's just it's unbelievably bad for them to keep them out of school compared to the threat of the disease if they're not vaccinated. It's it, it's really a remarkable occurrence. Any discussion whatsoever about mandating the vaccine for children, there really is no you know, epidemiological basis behind a mandate. We know that the vaccines for a very um, transient period of time will reduce the likelihood of infection, but that um, protection against infection wanes and quite dramatically so. And we all, again, I'm talking about empiricism. We can see this ourselves. We all know people who are vaccinated or boosted or double boosted and they still got infected. That doesn't mean the vaccine isn't helping to protect against severe disease. But when we are talking about a social benefit, which typically Mm -hmm. is the underlying reason behind a mandate, we don't always or often mandate a medical product solely because of the purported benefit to the individual. The underlying reason why a school district would do it is to say, hey, we need you to have this thing done because you have an obligation to the community. But the vaccine isn't doing that to any degree uh, on a large scale that would make sense, particularly so for children who've already been infected. Um, I have not seen any data to show what the actual reduction is in severe disease or illness from um, a child being vaccinated versus a child who's healthy, who's already had COVID. Um, We haven't seen any of that um, real world data yet. And what are the rates of vac- of children who have already had uh, COVID? Um, I mean, this is quite a while ago. It was north of 75%. So it's certainly above that now. And this is, you know, one of the other things that I tweeted about the other day. This dovetails with the concept that there was a large piece in the New York Times the other day where the author, and, and the Times piece is not alone in doing this, where they referred to anybody who has any questions whatsoever about a vaccine as an anti-vaxxer. The article referred to, there was a guy, Rob Astorino, who was running for governor in New York. He, he said, I am vaccinated. I encourage you to get vaccinated. He wants people to be vaccinated, but he said, I'm not against uh, mandating it for kids. It shouldn't be required. He was listed as an anti-vaxxer. How can you call someone? <laughs> By the way, the people on the FDA and CDC advisory committees, they ask questions like this. I asked you know, people, what is the evidence I'd like to see on what is the protection? What is the absolute risk reduction mm-hmm. of severe disease for a child who's healthy, who's already had COVID, if they already get vaccinated? What, what is the risk reduction in an absolute sense with those numbers? And some doctor on Twitter went ballistic and called me an anti-vaxxer. I was like, those are the questions that professionals are asking and should be asked. These, this notion yeah. of using language to call everybody an anti-vaxxer because they want to ask a question or they're against mandating it for a child is designed to shut down debate. It is designed to make people afraid to say something because you're branding them something that has a strong negative connotation to it. And it's inaccurate. It is an imprecise and inaccurate language. Unbelievable. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me again. Gain-of-function research has the potential to unleash a global pandemic that threatens the lives of millions, yet this is the first time the issue has been discussed in a congressional committee. I'm sure each member of this committee, as well as the full Senate, can agree that we need stronger government oversight 
of how our tax dollars are being used to finance experimenting with, mute, uh, with possibly fatal diseases. That was Senator Rand Paul during yesterday's first ever hearing on gain-of-function research aimed at finding the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. The senator himself joins us now to discuss further. Welcome to the show, Senator Paul. Thanks for having me. Senator Paul, what were some of the highlights of this hearing? You know, I think the key was that all three scientists that we brought in, and these are esteemed scientists that have been interested in this issue for some time, all three of the scientists agree that the research that the United States was funding in Wuhan through the NIH was gain-of-function research, that this research was a dangerous type of research that should have been reviewed by the pandemic committee that reviews dangerous research, and that it wasn't. And that really what Dr. Fauci said directly in committee that the NIH does not fund gain of function in Wuhan and never has is an out and out lie. Also, when Dr. Fauci said that this uh, research was reviewed and found to be safe by experts, that was also a lie. This research was never reviewed. The panel with a committee set up to review gain of function research never reviewed this. The other thing that came to light from yesterday's hearing is that the pandemic review committee, the one that looks at dangerous viruses and this type of research, um, meets in secret. We don't know their members and they don't release their minutes. I mean, this is absurd. I can't imagine anybody justifying that the members are secret and they don't release their minutes. But they also only review your research if you flag it for them. They don't go looking for gain of function research. They don't research anybody that's working with a dangerous virus. They review it if you opt into the program. So it's an opt-in, not a uh, mandatory review. They also don't have the force of law or the force to remove your funding if they find it to be dangerous. So there's all kinds of problems here. One of the things the three scientists came together and all agreed on, they all wrote their statements independently, was that maybe this should be overseen similar to the way we oversee nuclear technology. Um, you know, we don't let any uh, American just sort of pick up and start selling centrifuges to uh, Iran or to Russia or to China to enrich uh, uranium. It's, it's not legal to sell these weapons that could create nuclear bombs. Well, maybe it shouldn't be legal to sell things that construct a virus that could kill a million people. And we lead in all the technology and our taxpayers have paid for a lot of it. So I see no reason why we shouldn't have more oversight. Speaking of Dr. Fauci, we had him on the show last week and I, I asked him about gain of function research and here's what he said to us. There's a lot of misconception about gain of function as a broad general category, as opposed to in a specific situation to examine whether or not the benefit for understanding more about the evolution of these outweighs any risks. And the risks that are taken are under the guardrails that I'm talking about. Uh, you know, I, I think we can all agree that experimenting, that tr trying to make more lethal these viruses is, is concerning anyway. But, you know, what do you make of, of Fauci's attempt to kind of get around it by saying, like, no, the technical exact thing you're talking about, that's not what we're doing, it's something else? I think the reason for it is, is that I think deep down he feels a moral culpability for this pandemic. 
he realizes that there's a very good chance that it came from the lab. And if it did come from the lab and it came out of research that we were financing, ultimately he and his decision-making uh, should be judged in reviewing the history of where this pandemic came from. But he hasn't been honest. I mean, one of his chief critics was the scientist yesterday, Dr. Richard Ebright, who's been an editor of uh, Scientific Magazine for Scientific Journal for more than a decade, has peer-reviewed uh, more than 170 articles in peer-reviewed journals. And he said that without question that uh, Dr. Fauci was untruthful, that this was gain-of-function research, that even the NIH has admitted this. There's a letter from a Dr. Taberic in which he says, well, yes, of course this was, and we indicated and defined it. Anything that increased the, uh, the transmissibility by more than tenfold was gain of function. And this actually increased the transmissibility by 10,000 fold. So uh, without question, this was gain of function research. And it was research that should have been known from the very beginning. They took a virus that has 15% mortality and they mixed it together with an S protein from unknown bat viruses taken from a bat cave. So what they did is they took a virus that's pretty deadly and not very transmissible. And they said, hey, wonder if we put new S proteins on from an unknown virus, if we can make it more infectious. And they did, they made it 10,000 times more infectious. So they were monkeying around with mother nature, trying to make viruses that are already known to be deadly, more infectious. Um, if that's not gain of function, I don't know what is, but I, I think that Fauci's losing this war in the sense that he's been dishonest with the American people and, and we've lost a great deal of trust in public health because of him. Um, the reason it's important in getting to the truth isn't so much to punish him, although I think he, he should be punished for lying, but it's really the danger of another pandemic. One of the scientists yesterday says that in looking at the samples of people uh, early on that got this infection that were working in that lab, they found trace elements of Nipah virus, N-I-P-A-H. This is a virus that has 60% mortality. So we now have indirect evidence that they've been doing experiments in that lab where, the, where, they, where this occurred with Nipah virus. So there's a lot of stuff going on here. There's research around the world on Marburg virus, which is also a 50, 60% deadly virus. And many of these viruses, the lucky thing is from nature is that sometimes the more deadly, the less transmissible. But would we wanna take very deadly, but not very transmissible or not aerosolized viruses and say, wow, what if we can make them more transmissible? Or what if we can make this virus that doesn't infect through the air, that's not aerosolized, what if we could make it aerosolized? And they claim they're doing it to see if it might happen in mother nature. But the way evolution works and the way genetics randomly associate, um, the chance that we'll ever create something in a lab that would be created in nature is virtually zero. The other point they made the other day, which is very clear is, we're not making vaccines the old fashioned way where we need to grow the virus for years and years and try to guess what the virus will be. We can now sequence a virus within days of it becoming a pathogen, within days of it becoming a pandemic, and we can create these mRNA vaccines actually within days to weeks. So this has really transformed the world of, of vaccines. It also gets to the point of how come we're still using the vaccine from the wild type vaccine from two years ago, and why hasn't there been a new vaccine? Um, there are a lot of questions being asked, but there has been a lot of uh, obfuscation of the truth. 
coming from uh, Fauci, but also various aspects of the CDC and the FDA. Yeah, absolutely. And and I was going to ask you about that. You know, what kind of reforms should we expect to see you know, with the monkeypox outbreak now? I think there's a sense uh, among a lot of people paying close attention to it that many of the same failures that were evident in the COVID pandemic are frustratingly being repeated. I know the FDA took uh, a long time to inspect the facility where the monkey, uh, va- we already have this vaccine and we're ta- not taking, uh, not quickly enough getting it uh, to the at-risk uh, population. And there seems to be just very little ac- accountability for the FDA and the CDC, the CDC you know, messing up the early COVID testing so catastrophically. Um, how are we going to see accountability for that? There's almost an exact parallel between the testing of COVID and monkeypox. Early on in COVID, University of Washington developed a test within days. The way we have historically allowed testing to be developed in our country is that universities are given largely free reign. They're regulated under the uh, Clinical Laboratory Act from uh, 20 years ago, but they're allowed to do pretty much what they want in developing testing. And they're some of our brightest PhDs and virologists work in our universities. So hundreds and hundreds of universities immediately start trying to make tests when there's something. So a guy from University of Washington made the COVID test within a couple of days, but then the CDC said, oh no, we know better. We're going to monopolize it and prevent anybody else from doing it. And they screwed it up. The test didn't work for about a month. And then eventually they started letting other people make the test. Same thing with monkeypox. CDC's monopolizing it. They were screwing it up. So they released it to four other labs to make the test. But guess what? University of Stanford already has a PCR test. This is like the test for COVID. It works. And the thing is, it leads to more rapid treatment. Like most infections, the, the sooner you get treatment, the better. So if you're sitting around waiting for a week or waiting for the government to come up with a test, and you, the longer you wait with the disease, the less likely the treatment is to work. So rapid testing, uh, we should decentralize. It's sort of a, a parallel argument to all sort of free market economics that you don't want to centralize the decision making for fear that someone, some central authority, some planner makes a mistake and that mistake is transmitted to the whole country. Let all the universities get involved with this, let them compete, and we can do amazing things. But yeah, they're making exactly the same mistakes they made with COVID. Before you go, I wanted to ask you some questions about uh, the PACT Act or the Promise to Address Comprehensive Toxic Bill, which funds research and benefits for veterans who are exposed to toxic substances while they served. So you were one of the 11 senators to vote against this, and you were consistent. You voted against it both times, unlike many of your Republican colleagues who voted for it for the first time and then against it the second time. Um, you. Uh, voted against it because you said that one, two things. One is that you wanted to um, uh, pay for the pact expansion um, with an amendment of foreign aid moratorium except Israel, Uh, wanted to know why you exempted Israel, and also wanted to know if you thought we had any responsibilities to civilians in the area who were exposed to the same toxins that uh, the soldiers were exposed to. And then the last question I had about this is that you mentioned that one of the reasons you opposed funding was because a lot of these diseases like hypertension and asthma uh, exist among non-veterans. But what do you say to the research showing that uh, there are higher rates among veterans? So I've been a big believer throughout time that if we send our young men and women to war, we have a responsibility to take care of them. I voted previously for health care for people who have diseases associated with burn pits. The military, though, has always had sort of rules on what they take care of. So if you lose your leg 
uh, in war, they take care of you for the rest of your life for that. If you lose your leg in war, and then when you're 65 years old, you develop hypertension, they, the VA doesn't. And you can argue the VA should take care of everything, but the VA, frankly, has said it has to be service-connected or related to your service. And the reason we do this is not because people say, oh, I, I don't want to help veterans. The reason we do this is there's a finite amount of resources. So, for example, uh, my father-in-law served for 20 years. He gets all of his stuff paid for. That's a reward we give to people who will give us a whole career. People that serve 10 years don't get that. So we've always sort of differentiated on what type of care we give, how, many, uh, how much payment for drugs we give. If you serve two years, you get very little of that, and you only get what uh, paid for for what diseases occurred during the time you were in the military. So it, it's one thing to say, yes, we should take care of people who have an injury related to something that happened in the military, but um, it's important to have some kind of link of causation. Now, saying there's a higher incidence of something, a uh, higher incidence of hypertension in uh, people who uh, had burn pit exposure, perhaps, but there also could be a higher incidence of other type of behaviors involved as well. And the thing is, is there, there are probably stronger arguments for respiratory ailments, um, but it's confounding. It's not always easy to make these judgments. If you smoked for 40 years and you have emphysema and you also were exposed to a, uh, exposed to a burn pit, it's, it's very hard to, to make the judgment about causation of what actually causes this. But we do a lot for our veterans and I've voted for a lot of uh, expenditures for our veterans. But typically, if something comes up that's extraordinarily expensive like this, uh, this is going to be over $300 billion in the face of already borrowing a trillion dollars a year. I think it only makes sense that we should pay for it. Um, you know, we give about $30 billion a year in foreign aid. I see no reason why if uh, we can't afford and we run a deficit here that we shouldn't uh, say, well, you know what, for the next 10 years, we can't send welfare overseas because we're going to pay for our veterans here. So I've been a stickler for this on everything, whether it's 9-11 uh, or otherwise. And uh, somebody has to be fiscally conservative. It's very easy to be generous with other people's money. You have advocates running around saying, we want to give everybody everything all the time. Well, you know, if that bankrupts the country or destroys the currency, or you wind up like Sri Lanka with 75% inflation, or you wind up with Venezuela with 50% inflation every month, um, would it have been worthwhile? So there's a lot of people with big hearts. There's a lot of people that want to help everyone, but we have a finite amount of resources. And if you extend um, all the benefits to everyone, then you may not have enough for those you've, you've already promised to. So the, the people who served a career, a 20 year career in the military, you've made a promise to them. If you say, well, we're going to give the same benefits to those who served two years as 20 years, then you'd be t taking away from the promise you made to the 20 year veterans. So there's a lot of reasons why we need fiscally conservative uh, voices. It isn't easy to be fiscally conservative because obviously the emotions are to do everything for everyone. But I do think that we should help our, our veterans who have served in the military, but it doesn't mean that we throw out all rules and have uh, just basically, um, you know, unlimited sort of uh, resources because we don't. Senator Paul, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. During a press conference yesterday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis suggested doctors who perform gender-affirming surgery on transgender children should be sued. Let's watch. Talk about these very young kids getting 
gender-affirming care. What they don't tell you what that is, is they're actually giving very young girls double mastectomies. They want to castrate these young boys. That's wrong. And so we've stood up and said, both from the health and children well-being perspective, you know, you don't disfigure 10, 12, 13-year-old kids uh, based on gender dysphoria. 80% of it resolves anyways by the time they get older. So why would you be doing this? I think these doctors need to get sued for what's happening. I'm sorry. So, and this is a hot-button culture issue, uh, obviously. I don't, so I don't think doctors should be sued, obviously. Uh, I do think uh, 10, 12, 14 sounds pretty young to me to be going through with your uh, difficult to reverse surgery, some irreversible surgeries uh, for young people. Um, look, I think that's between them, their families, their doctors. Um, that sounds pretty young to me. I, the recommended age, as far as I can tell, is not till they're like 16 and 18. You're supposed to use the puberty blockers right. to prevent the changes from happening. If you're uh, someone who is um, uh, who thinks that's going to be something, an option you're going to elect sure. for later in life is a surgery. That seems to be the best. Now, though, even those puberty blockers can have, uh, there's, the medical community is debating what kind of changes are not possibly not reversible in terms of your sec sexual health, your ability to reproduce. I think it's, the science is not at all settled on that. So I absolutely take DeSantis's point that you know, young, young kids doing surgery, but, it should be very cautiously pursued sure. if pursued at all. But the thing is, like, he's, this is just throwing red meat to his red base, which doesn't care about this when it's not presented in such a provocative way. And it's really important to note that this is not happening. Like, young kids are not having surgery. And this isn't something that's easy to access. There's tons of screening. There are tons of medical societies and organizations that have many guidelines. It's not like a kid wakes up one day and is like, hey, can I have some surgery? And then they throw the kid down and have surgery. Also, I mean, if he cared about kids, he'd care about kids having access to gender-affirming care. You know, like people who want to transition, it's not an easy decision that they just make one day. And if, if he cared about kids, he'd want them to be able to access the care that they want. And that care involves a lot of screening and a lot of discussing. And I think that, uh, you know, this is just an issue that is a, there's a lot of moral panic around it. And again, he's throwing around statistics. This 80% resolving is not true. I don't know what, what he's citing, but it's not 80% of people who want gender affirming care do not then say, I don't want it anymore. I don't know where that's coming from. I think he's, there are kids who experiment with like pronouns, let's say, are non-binary. That's very different from people who want to medically transition. So maybe that's what he's referring that, to. So that's what the statistic is. My understanding is, because I have seen that statistic before, um, and I, I've seen it reported by responsible people, the, yeah. the people that I, opinions I generally trust. I think, uh, yes, what it means is that young people who are diagnosed with gender dysphoria, 80% um, 80, 80 of them later no longer uh, have gender dysphoria. So it, these are people who, the idea being, might have go gone through with, with surgery if, had, if it had been rushed on them right. or if it had been, right. and then would have regretted it because most of them don't actually need surgery. Right. My position on most this has always been the that uh, the surgery, actually going all the way through with transition, seems to me to be the right option for a very small number of people for whom it yeah. does help their mental health and their right. sense of self. Um, 
that's almost a separate issue from what I think a lot of parents are upset about, and a lot of conservatives and sure. DeSantis type people, which is more the kind of just casual erosion of gender at all, or the like, the tendency to now take like a little girl who likes playing with trucks or a little boy who likes playing with dolls and say, oh, well, you might actually be a woman or you might actually be a man. Yeah. That is not, uh, that is weird and in some ways like, like, Re um, uh, almost strengthening right. gender norms yeah, in a way that saying. doesn't yeah. make sense. Do you know I, what I'm saying? Yeah, but I do think that he's mixing uh, metaphors here, and he's very you know he wants people to think from that sound clip. He wants people to think that little kids are getting surgery, and even the terms that he uses, which again these are things when people decide to have surgery, which is not something kids are doing or have access to. There's so many barriers to that. But when they do, they don't consider it. It's not disfiguring when it's surgery that you want. I mean, people have, modify their bodies all the time. Mm -hmm. People have breast uh, implants. They have breast reductions. Like, everyone in Hollywood has had surgery. So that's another thing. I mean, so well, I think... And I'm fine with it, but you have to be, uh, you have to be, 60, you have to be able to consent yeah, of course. to and doing it, right? And that's and, what happens. Yeah, you have, yeah. you know, so all this moral panic, you know it's disproportionate because the numbers of... It's neg like, there are no kids who have access to surgery. Kids can't have surgery. You can't have the surgery until you're older. So it really does seem like a moral panic, and it seems like a fabricated hysteria that is just lets people like DeSantis distract from the issues that people actually care about that actually impact people's lives. I mean, it's so mm -hmm. it's so irrelevant what is happening when people are getting gender-affirming care. It has no impact on anyone except for the person who's doing it. And again, it's not like there are all these medical uh, consultations that happen. This, I think he really wants to create the impression, a lot of people who are drumming transphobia really want to create the impression that kids are just walking into operating rooms, getting surgery. The, the reality is so far from that. And yeah. there's so there's so many medical professionals. That's the other thing. It's like, you want to sue the doctors? Okay, go ahead. I mean, I don't want to sue the doctors. But is this, wh what are you saying? Do you not trust doctors? Do you not trust them? Do you think doctors are like rushing to have, uh, to, to operate on kids? That's not the case at all. And again, I just think that this is uh, something that people who care about kids do not actually prioritize talking about. This. I think the idea that a lot of kids are being rushed to like the surgeon's knife or something is a little bit of a, a hysterical. I agree yeah. with you on that. I, we might disagree on the kind of uh, what I was saying about the kind of casual erosion of gender having to do with the way uh, educators are being trained. And, yeah. and, and on that front, wanted to talk about uh, this new San Diego school district teacher training that was uh, obtained by writer Christopher Rufo, conforms to what Rufo identifies as radical gender theory, suggesting that white Europeans created a false gender binary, man and woman, that oppresses trans, non-binary, intersex, gender non-conforming people. These are kind of educational slides that, uh, you know, Rufo finds these from time to time. He's this kind of well-known conservative activist um, who has uncovered a lot of, uh, of educational materials done at, I mean, done some done for corporations, some done by like activist educators, diversity equity trainings. He did a lot on the race stuff. Um, and uh, so he's finding stuff on gender, you know, that's training for, for teachers. And I think, look, I think most parents, maybe there's some minority of parents who are like extremely progressive and have no problem with their very young kids being exposed to like kind of Radical, I think, is a right. fair way to describe theories about gender at a young age. Most parents don't want that. Most parents absolutely do not want this in schools from, from like, you know, until 
until it, you have to talk about, you know, I guess, you know, literal proc- right. procreation. You have to have the talk with children at a certain age. But other than that, they don't want like kindergartners exposed to. It's the ideas that like man and woman doesn't exist, and this is something white European. But I think the problem is that we're invented. talking about Chris Rufo, who's kind of notorious for misrepresenting things. I mean, I take him with a grain of salt, like many grains of salt, like enough grains of salt to give me hypertension, you know. <laughs> uh, and I recommend everyone do that, not get hypertension, but take his what he says with a grain of salt, because he's made claims in the past that have deep, been debunked. He's a real ideologue. An extremely ideological person, I mean, and he's very much wants to erode trust in public education. And what's interesting is that I looked at the document that he claims is representing this all-in San Diego all-in. It's a document. It's called Facilitator Training Workshops for LGBTQ Youth and Allies. So first of all, it's not necessarily for kids. It's certainly not something that's being used across the board. It's for the There's people no who are going that to. It's been teach funded with si- with city money. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like maybe it was written for a specific workshop, but he says the district has gone all in on radical gender theory. I could find anything. I could find a, a training for teachers. There's no proof that he gives that it's actually even being picked up by teachers. I reached out to a, f- a friend who lives in San Diego who's a parent, and they reached out to uh, a teacher in San Diego who said, this is anecdotal, obviously, but my friend said, I asked an uh, SD teacher of San Diego uh, about these docs, and she says she's never seen anything remotely close to that, wouldn't even know where something like that would be made available to her, has nothing to do with her job. So I just think that I could find anything. I went to Wesleyan University. Trust me, I could make a document like that in my sleep. I'm not saying that these aren't real uh, or that they're being created like uh, by Rufo necessarily, but I do think that there's no evidence that these are widespread. So I, you can find anything and say it's problematic. I just, this is a guy who said, like, people were chanting to, to human sacrifice, Aztec gods or something. I mean, I've, I've criticized Christopher Rufo when I've disagreed with him. But to his credit, he, he tends to find and produce actual documents, the content of which I, I think, I understand why a reasonable uh, parent would not want um, teachers being trained by this and then talking to their kids about these subjects. How often is it happening? Maybe not that often. I don't think that it's never happening. Um, I don't. I don't think right. that. I, maybe you do see. Not to bring up like libs of TikTok or whatever. You do uh, f- see lots of evidence. Uh, I, I mean, again, there's so many schools in the country. It could be the case. Ninety-five percent of schools are not touched by this, or not right. having the, these kinds of teachers. But there are enough like, anecdotal and reported on uh, cases of teachers uh, who want to talk to even very young kids about these subjects. And look, parents don't want that. It's public education. I think parents should have some say over it. They don't want it, so it, yeah. shouldn't be, it shouldn't be part of the educational experience for public schools for young kids. Yeah, I just think that I'm just reading a, a tweet that, uh, that Rufo sent, which is basically he's saying, like, with his work on critical race theory, he says the goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. We have decodified the term, and, we, and we'll recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with American. Uh, if you want to see public policy outcomes, you have to run a public persuasion campaign, which is, okay, this is very honest of him. He's saying basically he's a PR guy. He's kind of a spin doctor, but he's saying it right there. He wants to have people look at any random thing and think it's part of a greater trend, whether it's critical race theory or this gender stuff. So I just think he's 
good for him for having this open view about being a foot soldier in this culture war. Um, and again, the guys worked at the Heritage Foundation at, at, at a Christian think tank also. And I think this is great for him, who's definitely invested in making it look like the public education system is filling your kids' heads with uh, you know, woke, uh, radical ideology, which I just don't think is that pervasive at all. And I think that you know, giving kids the freedom to look at things in, in different ways that are less gender uh, less gendered is good, but I don't even think that happens that much. I think that he clearly has an agenda, and he's not reliable. And uh, we can also find examples of teaching in the total opposite direction that's much more represented. It's just that we don't have people like making uh, their living off of showing that as much. What do you mean other going the other way? Well, like very problematically uh, gendered or uh, like creationism. Yeah, yeah, which is yeah, something. Yeah, but that's something. But okay, that would be my point. But liberals do complain about okay, that. Okay, yeah, and you're want right. Yeah, sure, taught. they do. Right, but I guess that those things are are they and that is fair game. It is fair. I don't to know point what's more. Right. I, I, look, I but take I, your point that maybe it's not as as, as widespread as he's making yeah. it sound. In, in fact, it's, certainly it's not. And, uh, and that he is an activist, but um, yeah, he has the receipts. He has actual documents. Yeah, and, they're uh, just, I would say he has receipts. The receipts don't represent what he's claiming to have. Okay. So it's like I'm pretending that I bought McDonald's and I show you a Starbucks receipt. Okay. And ha got to have that whole pile of salt yeah, for our hypertension. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. But well, it is funny how, sorry, I just have one more point. It's like they're always saying that the left wants to change language to make people think differently. And this is exactly what Rufo is doing. So good on it him. It is an example of becoming, uh, people who overly obsess over activists yeah. uh, become, eventually come to sound like the people they're obsessed with, yeah. um, which is not a, not a healthy trend. Yeah. But um, so, yeah. I don't, good I job being a rabid want, ideologue, Rufo. Well, I, but there's That's me, rabid. not Robbie. This is a mixed, uh, mixed uh, endorsement. People would call us rabid ideologues in some Oh, some but sense. I own that. I yeah. own that, yeah. Well, that's what Rufo's doing. Yeah. Uh, I'm, not, I'm just a fair, objective, down-the-middle journalist with no biases. Landing in my lap as opposed to... He's clearly looking for the most provocative things that you can find that we don't even know if they're being used. So, Well, I, check them out for yourselves. Uh, they're available on uh, his social media feeds and elsewhere. Senator Josh Hawley was the only senator to vote against a resolution on Wednesday supporting Finland and Sweden's entry into NATO. The Senate approved the resolution in a 95 to 1 vote. Senator Rand Paul voted present, according to The Hill. The Senate defeated an amendment put forth by Rand Paul to the resolution backing Finland and Sweden's entrance into NATO, which sought to emphasize that Article 5 of the Military Alliances Treaty does not supersede Congress's ability to declare war. Okay, so we're back in this conversation that we were having at the start of the Ukraine war. The left, many parts of the left, were raising whether or not the T the, the, the temptation to the, the conversation about expanding NATO was a provocation of sorts, not that it justified Russia's sure. invasion, but it was right. part of this bigger story. And there ha had not been a lot of that that made it into the mainstream critique. And now we're seeing a doubling down of some of the kinds of behaviors from the West that arguably precipitated the Ukraine conflict in the first place. What's the reasoning here? Right. I mean, I think as you distinguished just now, there's a difference between something being justifiable and something being preventable. Mm -hmm. And I do think that as I said earlier on this show, there were a lot of things that the United States and the West could have done to prevent uh, Putin from doing what he'd done if they had been more amenable to actually negotiating or speaking to Putin. I think this is very stupid. Uh, I think, uh, it, if anything, it's a great PR victory for Putin. He can just point to this and say, right. this is exactly what I was talking right. about. 
Um, and I also think that it's quite pathetic that the that there's such bipartisan uh, embrace of uh, expanding NATO. And we also had uh, an, uh, a, a resolution which got broad consensus, which was saying that NATO uh, countries had to dedicate at least 2% of their budgets to the military. Mm. So this kind of bipartisan embrace of militarism and hawkishness is really disturbing. Yeah. This is this is a really good point you raised because even if you think that Putin is a bad actor, yeah. right? Even if you think, oh, he's gonna he's gonna use whatever you know pretext he can find to do an invasion. And this this is a similar conversation that we we're having about Taiwan a day ago. If you believe that's the case, why would you offer him up? pretexts that are plausible right. to justify a whole host of other kind of behaviors on. And people were talking about this in the context of Taiwan, saying that it was that, you know, uh, one particular very online Chinese journalist who was really escalating a lot of the discourse around Nancy Pelosi, who escalated the threat that, you know, she could be shot out of the sky, in part because it behooves China to be able to push the narrative that there right. is U.S. imperialism going on and they are moving in on Taiwan. And we do have to have, you know, more air flights over the territory and all of those kinds of things. If you don't want them to be able to do that and make those kinds of arguments, then why do you keep setting up these kinds of provocations? Yeah. Moreover, you know, in this, I hate to, you know, sound like Donald Trump, but there's this, a question of what is the purpose of NATO and how is NATO benefited by these two countries, hardly military mites, right. being a part of the alliance, other than they are now you know, obligating us to get involved in additional conflicts like the one in Ukraine, potentially. Right. I mean, I think that what you just uh, mentioned is really key because it, why is the U.S. giving these, handing these kind of rhetorical, symbolic victories to Putin and to China? And I think it speaks, because it would seem like it was so against our self-interest, uh, but I think it speaks to how pervasive and entrenched American exceptionalism is mm -hmm. that they don't even, it doesn't even occur to them mm -hmm. what this could look like to people outside of the United mm -hmm. States, not to mention within the United States. I think within the United States, it's more comes off as why are we spending money on these wars and these proxy wars mm -hmm. uh, when we're not even providing for the people here. But I do think that it's true that these things that should be embarrassments, uh, I think that people, they're so, you know, American politicians are just so entitled. They're so insulated, they have no uh, regard for how the rest of the world sees us. So that's yeah. why I think they keep doing these things that, again, just play, you know, people always talk about the Russian playbook. Well, this is great for the Russian playbook. Yeah. I mean, they're the ones talking about NATO expansion, then look what we do. Yeah, we're, we're writing the Russian playbook. Yeah, exactly, seriously. <laughs> so, I, and, it, and it is pathetic that you get one senator who's a Republican. I mean, this is, it's, it's pathetic to watch the right being able to kind of carve out this space that really, the left should be in. And, and yeah. then some people are like, oh, well, obviously it's a bad thing to do if people on the right are doing it. No, there are people on the right are can be isolationist. They can uh, oppose certain things for the wrong reasons. That doesn't mean that you should be pro-war. Yeah, and, and to be fair, it's overwhelmingly bipartisan yes, it here. Is. This one it's, is, yeah. it's, you know, the outlier t turns out to right. be on the right. But it is frustrating, I gotta say, we're sitting here to Bernie Broads. It yeah. is frustrating that the left flank isn't represented in that outlier group right. either. At all. Yeah, I mean, um, Ilan Omar said some things at certain points about the war, about sanctions. Mm -hmm. uh, Cori Bush uh, voted against something at one point that was impressive. I honestly can't remember which <laughs> thing it was. Um, but it was something anti-war-ish. And uh, yeah, I think that there's been a real, like, you know how Trump kind of broke people's brains, mm -hmm. liberal brains? I also think that 
Putin has broken people's brains. Well, cer and of course, they conflate the two of them, thanks to liberal homophobic <laughs> tropes about them being boyfriends. Yeah. Oh, take me back, Katie. Don't take me back. We got past that. Well, journalist Glenn Greenwald said in a tweet yesterday that Bernie Sanders can no longer pretend to have anything resembling a left uh, when with foreign policy, as opposing uh, NATO's expansion was long uh, for a long time mainstream liberal view that now only Holly and Paul will get near. Yeah, I, it's hard to disagree with that. I mean, Glenn's been a watchdog on these kind of things right. for a very long time. And it is, it, is, it is frustrating that because of the way the press is, you won't even get people who have really have access to asking Bernie Sanders about right, his vote exactly. here to push him on this. Right, because this was the same press that was asking Biden's administration why he wasn't calling for a no-fly zone, right. which gives you a sense of how incredibly out of touch and to the right they are of the Pentagon mm -hmm. when it comes to this stuff. Uh, I think that I'm not, I don't totally endorse Glenn's view here. I mean, I think it is pathetic that Bernie has been so silent on this and hasn't done the thing that he usually does, which is connect the dots between yeah. U.S. foreign policy and domestic policy and kind of abandoning the people at home while funding wars abroad. Uh, but I, I do think he still should get credit for his position on Israel, which, again, I know for lots of my fellow leftists and Israel critics don't think he's uh, critical enough of Israel. I would agree, but I still think he's heads and shoulders away above um, most uh, definitely other senators. Yeah. Yeah. And you're seeing this. I mean, we have recently talked in other segments about um, the primary races over the course of the past week and the enormous amount of money and investment that seems to come out whenever there are these I wouldn't even want to say, like, it's almost feels like too much to say these pro-Palestinian advocates. Yeah, if Saying only. the bare minimum, yeah, doing right. the bare minimum yeah. gets you, gets your opponent, rather, in these races funded up the wazoo by these super PACs, these, um, you know, APAC, DMFI-style PACs that we saw play such a big role in Senator Turner's race and elsewhere. And just now with Levin and Exactly. Uh, they will yeah. they will come after you if you're a Jewish candidate. Jewish they will come after you no like, matter what. You know, head of a synagogue. Yeah. Head of a synagogue, yeah. Yeah. So we, I, you know, credit where credit's due, but it is frustrating that there doesn't seem to be many people who are taking the kind of consistent principle stance where you can just kind of set your clock to what they right. vote and what they say and and set it and forget it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of cowardice, especially when it comes to the war in Ukraine, because if you are at all opposing escalating a proxy war, then you are all of a sudden a Putinist. And the big irony is that the people who are being used as cannon fodder in this war I mean, there are casualties and deaths yeah. on both sides, but it's Ukrainians who are being used as cannon fodder in this war that the United States has no interest in ending. Yeah. And it's really disturbing. And we know this because of things that people have said. This is a proxy war. This is about bleeding Russia. This is about weakening Putin. This is not about saving lives or bringing peace to an area that desperately needs it. And it's yeah. going to end with diplomacy. The only question is how many people are going to die before the negotiations yeah, are I think made. It's, it's so astute when you, when you say that. Well, this all comes as Amnesty International has accused Ukraine of war crimes during its ongoing military conflict with Russia. The humanitarian organization said in a release on Wednesday that the Ukrainian military's tactics violate international humanitarian law and endanger civilians by operating weapons out of bases established in residential areas while civilians are present. Do you think this is going to result in any kind of public shift in attitudes toward our support of Ukraine? I mean, I'm so surprised that there's any reporting on it, honestly. Mm. I mentioned this before, but on Useful Idiots, which is the podcast that I started with Matt Taibbi, I now co-host with uh, temporarily with Aaron Mate while Matt is on book writing leave. Um, we interviewed Lindsay Snell, who's a journalist who just came back from Ukraine, mm. and she was talking to foreign fighters, and she found lots of interesting stuff about the kind of uh, corruption, the uh, 
stealing of, of arms, mm -hmm. uh, how underprotected uh, fighters are, how mm -hmm. they go to war with very bad equipment. And, um, I, you know, she talked a lot also about the Azov Battalion, which is the Nazi, neo-Nazi battalion, which apparently they're, they're trying to cover up some of the murals that they have. But um, I think this but is they a They recently decided that Nazi insignia isn't a good look. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and apparently the, all the, the media outlets that used to cover the Azov Battalion as Nazi no longer do. I mm -hmm. guess they had some sensitivity training. Like they read some Robin D'Angelo books or something at the <laughs> Azov Battalion. She's huge. She's huge among the Azov. But um, I think this is really important to know because the, the truth is, you know, war is hell and both sides will commit war crimes and, again, uh, this has been presented in a very black and white way. You don't have to like Putin to want there not to be a proxy war. Right. And I think it's important for us to look at this and realize this is not just a totally morally black and white war. Mm. Again, it was Putin's, he, he invaded and it was not justifiable. I think it was very preventable and I think that the United States has a lot of blood on its hands. Yeah. Um, but I'm, it's important for people to know that, that yeah. there are going to be war crimes on both sides. Yeah, and we will continue to cover all of America's proxy wars. Our next guest needs a little introduction. Co-chair of the Forward Party, Andrew Yang, joins us now to break down some big changes in the new third party. Welcome back to Rising, Andrew. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me all. So, Andrew, you are now the you know, co-chair, is it, of the largest third party in the United States? Yeah, that's right. By resources, we're growing like wildfire, too. Uh, well over 25,000 Americans have joined the forward party in the last number of hours uh, since our announcement. We've raised well into the six figures just from grassroots donations alone. So you're looking at the co-chair of the third biggest political party in the country. Thank you, America. Appreciate the heck out of you. Let's move this country forward. Andrew, that's that's a really exciting prospect to people, people like myself who have been advocating for a long time for third parties and who really appreciate that there is a well-funded effort to pursue things like ranked choice voting and ballot access for all kinds of people who are trying to get on the ballot. But here's, I think, what people want to know. How are you going to differentiate the forward party from the two corporate parties that already exist? How, what do you identify as being at the root of the problems in the two existing major corporate parties? And how can the forward party hope to differentiate itself if it also is similarly funded by those same kind of corporate resources? Well, if you look at our actual donor base, uh, you'll find nary a company among them. It's, again, grassroots donations from Americans who are fed up, from the 88% who think are on the wrong track, from the 62% uh, who want a third-party alternative. So this is the political party that is free of corporate influence that was just going to try and move policy forward that actually helps people, families, and communities. I've kind of been entertained by the press accounts to the contrary, given that you could just look at our filings, see exactly who's funding us, but most people uh, you know, don't do that because they, they prefer uh, a narrative that serves their interests. The people know we're on their side and we don't control a damn thing except the, the, the hopes and dreams of the American people who wanna try and get out from under this broken system. So Andrew, are you saying that you, the Ford party is willing to take a no corporate money pledge the same way that Bernie and a number of other progressives have done? Because when last we spoke, that wasn't the case. No, again, you can just look at who's funding us uh, at any given moment in time, and you will see that it's just everyday Americans who want a better life. But are you refusing corporate donations? 
No, I mean, we haven't gotten any yet. I mean, I haven't had to, to make a decision uh, on this. I would love to, for example, say we're not going to take any money from any Fortune 500, from any Fortune 1000 company along those lines. I mean, if there's a small business owner out there who wants to make a contribution, though most of them don't exactly have corporate PACs lying around. As the resident libertarian in this conversation, I don't particularly care if the party takes corporate uh, donations or not. Uh, I would care more about what the actual policies are. But my, uh, my question to you, Andrew, I think that as a third-party voter, a supporter of the Libertarian Party, I know that third parties face such structural disadvantages in our two-party system from uh, you know, trying to get on the ballot, dealing with uh, the, the fees there, uh, the fact that the, the system is winner-take-all so often. So even if you're supported by three or five or ten percent of the voters, you're not getting equivalent representation in our government, uh, is fixing or addressing or arguing about the structural issues third parties face, is, is that going to be part of the forward party's efforts? Oh, Robbie, you're reading my mind, my friend. Uh, yeah, again, 62% of Americans want a third party and just keep being told, oh, can't have one, spoiler. Then you look at it and be like, wait a minute, uh, if we just adopted ranked choice voting, anyone can vote for whomever they want. And yet Democrats are fighting about initiative in Nevada that makes that possible. I will tell you all something. It's probably not that much of a secret. Uh, I think the worst number of parties you can have is one. Uh, the second worst is two. Thir three would be infinitely better. Um, but if we got to a, a system that had four or five, six parties, I think that's probably healthier and more dynamic. And so anyone who's for anything thriving outside the duopoly should join the forward party movement, make it so that we have an open competitive system, nonpartisan open primaries and ranked choice voting so anyone can vote for whoever they want. And then if they want to vote Libertarian, Robbie, great. You might actually you know, have the ability to do so without having to fight to stay mm -hmm. on the ballot in any given year. Greens, same thing. Independence, same thing. Like anyone who's for an alternative to the duopoly has to be for systemic reform. And this is the way we get it. According to the Forward Party's website, you write, Americans deserve more than two outdated choices. The major parties are taking this country backward, and Democrats and Republicans have been unable to overcome extremists. To move forward, we don't just need a new party, but a new kind of party, a unifying anti-extremist party that gets things done. That's why we're building Forward. So my question is, where are the Democrats to extremists? Where are they out of touch? And are, do you think that they're as far from the center uh, as Republicans are? Uh, I'd be the first to say that the issues facing the two parties are not the same. Uh, they're asymmetrical. The Republican Party has become uh, an authoritarian cult of personality. Uh, and it made me very sad when folks like Peter Meyer, who voted to impeach Trump, uh, lose in primaries, boosted by Democrats, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, th there are distortions uh, on the Democratic side that are not um, as dangerous in, in, in nature, but uh, you do see people being concerned more with making ideological points than doing anything that's going to improve people's lives. Uh, and there are many, many Americans who tell me that that kind of emphasis is one of the things that drives them in a two-party system um, to vote Republican. Uh, it's one reason why, again, you need a healthier, more dynamic system so that if someone, for example, is turned off by Democrats' emphasis on particular cultural points or messaging, that they don't necessarily go to the Republican Party, which in this case, in, in my view, uh, is uh, a threat to the country in its current form. Yeah, I'm really caught up in this idea of 
how to improve people's lives. I'm not like a lot of folks who would say it's impossible to have a big tent that has former Republicans and former Democrats under the same umbrella. I completely understand that because, as I said on my radar yesterday, there's a lot of that similar dissonance within the Democratic Party. As a leftist, I feel very alienated from the Democratic Party myself. But I am curious because what drives me and my solution, you know, the solutions that I feel like are the most effective is my diagnosis of the problem and my diagnosis of Democrats and why they don't do things to actually make people's lives better, despite at least articulating a desire to do so, unlike uh, uh, many Republicans. They say specific things about specific groups that are all right and good. My understanding is that they don't actually act on it because of corporate and political capture. You have you know, um, cabinet officials that work for Raytheon. You have the revolving door. You have uh, pharmaceutical industries and billionaires giving more than Joe Biden's campaign than anybody else in Congress. And consequently, you see the positions that they take on, on popular programs like Medicare for all, resistance to popular you know, interventions like a $15 minimum wage. So I'm curious. You know, what is your diagnosis of the problem? Because it seems to me that even if people share different approaches to fixing the problem, if you don't similarly see kind of corporate capture as at the root of it, I'm a little skeptical of, of people's ability in a big tent organization to come to any agreement about how to move forward. Um, Brianna, I'm gonna go one step deeper. Uh, the people's lives are irrelevant to both parties in the current system. And uh, the Democratic Party, is like the Republican Party in that an issue is worth more to them unaddressed than addressed. Mm. Uh, and you saw that with Roe v. Wade. I mean, they had decades to codify it, and they didn't. Um, and then as soon as the Supreme Court ruling came out, they were very on the ball in terms of sending fundraising appeals. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it, it's corporate money is certainly one big part of it, but it's even deeper is that you don't have a meaningful choice if they don't deliver. Um, it's one reason why the forward party is so important is that if, let's say, you are uh, a progressive who wants certain things to happen, you have to ask yourself, is this Democratic Party going to deliver? Uh, and would it be more likely to deliver if you had another place that you could go that was competition that was not the Republican Party? Uh, so you have an unaccountable, unrepresentative system where in 90 percent of the country, it's a foregone conclusion, which party is going to win that race? Uh, and so you don't have a need to actually address any of the problems that are getting worse and worse. I mean, I think most of you know I ran for president uh, because I thought things were getting worse for a lot of Americans. I mean, we're 28th in the world in various uh, measurements. Uh, and as that keeps on going down in this dysfunctional two-party system, you'll have different stories for why the suffering is going up and the anger will rise and the despair will rise. Uh, you need that to get channeled towards a party that will actually solve problems. And right now, neither party really needs to solve our problems in order to stay in power and win seats. I agree that neither party is solving the problems, and I agree with many of your criticisms of the Democratic Party. But my concern, or one of them, is that we already have a centrist party, and that's the Democrats. So having another party, I think, just pulls it further to the right. Pulls the, the Democratic that, Party further to the right? Yeah, and the entire debate. Because uh, presenting the Democrats as some kind of left-wing extremists equivalent of the of people on the right, I think will then just bring people further to the right. Because you're positioning yourselves as between those two extremes. Uh, well, if you look at what's going on within the, the Democratic Party, uh, you know, the, the, there, there are two uh, versions of the Democratic Party, in, in my opinion, uh, and I've been on the record saying, look, I think this Democratic Party should probably be two separate parties by now. I think this Republican Party should definitely be two separate parties from now. Uh, and then 
maybe you'd have a fifth party in the middle. And in that system, then you'd have coalitions coming together to get things done. So the question is, how do we get from this current dysfunctional broken two-party system to some version of what I'm describing? Uh, and one reason why I think this reform is so vital is that a two-party system is uniquely vulnerable and susceptible to authoritarianism. Because if one party goes dark, then the whole system goes dark. And in a country where 88% of Americans think we're on the wrong track, it's unrealistic to think that one party or another is going to maintain power forever, which seems well, to be also not... the Democratic re recipe. I mean, the, we all know yeah. the pendulum is going to swing. The pendulum may swing as early as November. Well, it also depends issue to issue. Uh, I mean, both of you probably are not happy with, uh, think the Democratic Party is not progressive enough, uh, by both of you, I mean, uh, Katie and Brianna, is not progressive enough on many economic issues. I, but I think a lot of voters would say at the local level feel that the Democratic Party is too progressive or too left on uh, or in criminal justice issues or is not rising to the to the moment on crime. So there'd be room for a further right Democratic Party on, on those issues. Can you get further at, to the right you know, than the Democratic Party? You know, more cops, fund more cops, Joe Biden. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, guys, I can only speak to what people actually, go ahead, Andrew. People are worried about crime and are not satisfied with Democratic uh, Party's answers on those subjects, are turning to the Republican Party, are horrified by the cult of personality Andrew's describing. And uh, I, I, well, go ahead, Andrew. I'm doing a little commercial well, no, for your and, project. And, and this is why we, we need something like the forward party, because you have like this left-right uh, debate. And then in, let's say, a city where people are concerned about rising crime, you know what people do? They just vote with their feet. You know, like I'm here in the San Francisco Bay Area. People just, you know, left. I mean, in, in, uh, and the same is true in Portland, Oregon. The same is true in, in, in other places. And the Democratic Party does not necessarily need to change its ways to stay in power because in these blue cities, there's no meaningful competition. So uh, if you want our public uh, sector to actually start delivering for us in a real way. You need genuine accountability, genuine representation, and that's not happening uh, on either side right now. So it, to me, it's not like, oh, if you had more people on the left. The fact is right now, the Democratic Party does not need to deliver anything of what it's saying in order to, to continue to stay in power because their only competition is the Republican Party. Um, but people are getting increasingly disenchanted and disappointed in the Democratic Party, which in my view is going to open the door to authoritarianism in this this uh, uniquely vulnerable and susceptible system that we've set up that, by the way, uh, is just terrible design. You know, if, if you just think about it for a second, it's like, hey, why is it that other countries don't have two-party system? It's just very, very bad design. Our founding fathers thought so. Everyone watching this knows it's the case. But then we just keep being told, oh, you can't change the design. And then, like, why can't you change the design? It's because the two parties have carved the country up like a turkey and said, you get this slice, you get this slice, and we're all the worst for it. Well, Andrew, you're an innovator, and many people came to you because you put UBI on the map in that big way. Yes. But some folks are asking why that doesn't seem to be reflected in the materials of the of the forward party. Is the is UBI going to still be a central element of this approach you're taking now? Uh, I personally believe in cash relief and UBI, but I also have concluded that our political system will not deliver anything significant unless it is reformed and modernized and revamped. It's actually not going to not deliver. Uh, it's going to deliver strife, conflict, civil war, possible authoritarianism. And so in that context, I thought, well, let me try and cure the system. And then we can hash out how to address poverty, how to improve education, how to address climate change. But I became convinced, and I think most Americans agree with me on this, that this particular version of our political system will not deliver anything substantial unless we get to the root cause of the problem. So that's why uh, I'm doing what I'm doing. 
Oh, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Andrew Yang, everybody. Thank you all. Would love to see you on the Ford Party Tour launching in <laughs> September, the first ever national convention. Can we count on the Hill to come to the first ever Ford <laughs> National Convention, summer oh, 2023? Uh, we would love to be there. Uh, we will absolutely cover Open it. Open bar? <laughs> that might well, yes. Good point, good point. We've got to work it, on that. It, it, for, forward party, I'm going to say it's going to be open bar. <laughs> got my vote. Bye, everyone. <laughs> Thanks, Bye, Andrew. Andrew. Thanks for joining us. Monica Lewinsky is back in the news. She has asked Beyonce to remove lyrics to a nine-year-old song referencing Lewinsky's infamous White House affair. The line in question, a part of the 2013 song Partition, is, quote, he Monica Lewinsky'd all on my gown. This isn't the first time Lewinsky has criticized the pop superstar for the raunchy name drop. Back in a 2014 Vanity Fair article, Lewinsky quipped, quote, thanks, Beyonce, but if we're, we're verbing, I think you meant Bill Clinton'd all on my gown, not Monica Lewinsky'd. Lewinsky's request comes only days after Beyonce wiped the word spaz from a song off her new album, Renaissance, after activists accused the star of ableism. One critic wrote on Twitter, quote, So Beyonce used the word spaz in her new heed song, Heated. Feels like a slap in the face to me. The disabled community and the progress we tried to make with Lizzo. Guess I'll just keep telling the whole industry to do better until ableist slurs disappear from music. A rep from the star told reporters earlier this week, quote, the word not used intentionally in a harmful way will be replaced. OK, so there's, there's a couple of things going on here. You know, we talked about this Lizzo thing on the show. I thought, you know, there was some dispute as to whether or not that was really a pejorative. I, as an older millennial, expl was explaining to Robbie, I very much remember that word being used a lot as a pejorative in my youth. Lizzo yeah. didn't have a problem taking it out. It got taken out. Seemed like a no-brainer. Everybody's happy. Beyonce similarly is taking it out of this. No brainer. Everybody's happy. The Monica Lewinsky piece, I think, is in interesting. People are saying it's a nine year old song. Why are you bringing this up right. again? You're just trying to get clout or whatever. But I got to say, I think Monica Lewinsky has a point here. Well, she certainly has a point grammatically, syntactically. Right. It should have been Bill Clinton, <laughs> it should have been Bill Clinton. not Monica Lewinsky. And, but that's, it's more than just syntax, right? right. It's the fact that in our popular culture, and I think because of how we see women in these exchanges as being more stigmatized than the men in these exchanges, it did feel like a punchier lyric to say Monica Lewinsky instead of Bill Clinton because she has been the site of focus of that exchange, even though she was, what, like a 22-year-old? 21-year-old. 21-year-old yeah. young woman. Right. Barely a young woman, and he was the president of the United States of America. So, you know, I'm not opining on whether or not Beyonce should have to go and rehash old right. lyrics, but I do think from a, a cultural evolution perspective, Monica Lewinsky is right to draw attention to this weird asymmetry that happened here. Yeah, I think that Monica Lewinsky's experience has really been um, kind of white, downplayed or misrepresented. And you yeah. have a lot of uh, old school pre-Me Too ideas that are still around when it comes to Lewinsky mm -hmm. because she's from that earlier era that mm -hmm. people haven't really like updated their views of it the way that they should. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, she refers to what happened with Bill Clinton as a gross abuse of power. Mm -hmm. She says she doesn't know where it fits into the Me Too um, story, but it is a gross abuse of power. And I think that's true. And, you know, I think that the vilification of her and, you know, Bill Clinton, he hasn't apologized to her, which mm -hmm. he does owe her an apology. You know, he said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, you know, 
Miles Gawinski, I there's a whole piece about all the, the songs. She has her work cut out for her, though, if she wants people to <laughs> update their music. Like, literally dozens of songs um, would have to be updated from people ranging to Cameron to, uh, to uh, DJ Butler to Eminem, uh, Ice Cube, Kid Cudi. I mean, the list goes on. So she yeah. really became well, that, a staple. That raises this other interesting question. It's, it's come up recently in the context of Stranger Things. I don't know if you caught this, but the producers of Stranger Things uh, went back to correct an inconsistency that came up in this last season because they said the date that things were happening, and it happened to be a date that was established in an earlier season as one of the main character's birthdays. Viewers pointed this out. Why is nobody acknowledging the character's birthday? So they went back and just changed the date. And people were saying, you know, now that everything is streaming uh, and online, right, right. people have the ability to go back and, and change things yeah. you watched. And there's no real, you know, register of how things were originally. There's no way to check some, like, original proof. Right. And that's very unsettling to people. So, I mean, do you think that artists, generally speaking, you know, when time has passed, even if they acknowledge that they were in the wrong, should have the obligation to go back and change things in the past. And should they do it, or should there be something in the way of a public record? Yeah, like a um, is it a statute of limitation? Exactly. Or yeah. Exactly. I mean, I I kind of feel like you know maybe the thing that people should do is they could have these people donate some money to a certain mm -hmm. cause. Maybe that mm -hmm. uh, elevates or empowers the the afflicted community, the community being offended. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know what would be in Monica Lewinsky's case, but I'm just thinking in general. Yeah. You can find so much problematic language. Yeah, um, this, is, this is also it. Also, gives me um Confederate Confederate statue vibes. <laughs> what do you, oh, I see. What you mean. Right. <laughs> these, these lyrics are the Confederate well, yeah. statues. Yeah, I mean, lyrics. I think that there is a real value in acknowledging something yeah. as opposed to whitewashing it yeah. and pretending it never happened. I mean, I I think that that's true. Um, there's a whole debate on you know. There's this mon not to get super nerdy, but there's this monument in Spain that was built by political prisoners under Franco. Mm. There's a whole debate about what should be done with it because it's just a huge. Um, Ode to fascism and Francoism, and it was built by some of the political prisoners there. And people think it should be maybe destroyed mm -hmm. or turned into a museum of, you know, as a never again type of thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Who knew we get to Spanish Civil War history from uh, <laughs> Beyonce and Monica Lewinsky? Well, but I you, have you to, whenever to Monica Lewinsky is brought up, I do have to say that you know it is a real stain on liberalism and liberal feminism that. Uh, no one takes the allegations of Juanita Broderick of mm -hmm. rape against Bill Clinton seriously, mm -hmm. and I just have to put that out there. And uh, Juanita Broderick may have politics that I don't share, but that doesn't mean that she shouldn't be heard and listened to. Yeah, well, allies in these, you know, weird alliances that come out in these in, in these uh, situations are all over the place right. and, not, and not predictable. And Beyonce has found herself an unlikely ally in. That's right, Ben Shapiro, the conservative commentator, defended the singer on the Ben Shapiro show, arguing that activists should focus their anger on much more offensive and harmful lyrics, such as those in the controversial smash hit, WAP. <laughs> These are the standards in our society. Using the word spaz in a song, totally bad, horrible, remove it, offensive. Having full-scale songs for children about the moisture state of your vagina that is Shakespearean wonder. It is. I mean, that's just the stuff that you should play for your kids. It's very empowering, empowering stuff. So I feel like I feel the, the left is very strict on its language and very loose on its morals and ideas. Loose. The, the right tends no to be a little looser on language and a little bit more strict on its morals and ideals. I mean, 
that just is begging to be looked at as proof that Ben Shapiro does not know how to satisfy his wife. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, like, he's obsessed with this WAP thing. Yeah, I, first yes. of all, I should say, WAP is not for children. I right. don't know who yeah. told him WAP is for right. children. There's a there's a famous, like, a TikTok clip where Cardi's in her house singing to WAP, and her daughter runs in, and she, like, quickly turns right. off the music and, like, ushers the daughter away. Like, no one is pretending this is preschool right. Playground yeah, fair. Exactly. Um, but I don't think that Beyonce is necessarily looking for this kind of support. The the issue is that look, language have her on changes. Show. <laughs> I'm sure she'd love that, yeah. But it, he, I understand, and I said this when we talked about the spaz issue the last time. I understand that language can change quickly and catch you unawares. And you can realize that you were saying something rather innocently that is genuinely offensive to communities that you do not intend to offend. And that can be disorienting, especially when the valence of the conversation is, you should have known better, Right. okay? And so I respect people's hesitation to want to immediately course correct to whatever the latest activist bugaboo is. But I think the reality is, like we all have to just grow up so we don't become the old man on the lawn fishing. Like It's not your fault that you didn't know. Yeah. You're not a bad person for having said right. the thing. And if you want to keep offending members of the community, you can. Sure. It's a free country. And if you think it's not a real community and that people are just blowing up things for the sake of internet clicks, keep doing what you're doing. Keep saying spaz. But if you want to respect people, if you want to be generally polite, yeah. go ahead and change it. Remove the lyric. And I truly don't see who's harmed by any of that. Right. And I would also say that, you know, as a, uh, in terms of strategically speaking, I do think it helps to n give the person the benefit of the doubt yeah. when you're, you know, to call in instead of calling out <laughs> if you actually care about uh, people being receptive to changing yeah. things. Yeah. Well, Katie, I hear you are going to be doing your best Ryan Grimm impression tomorrow with Emily Jashinsky. Yes, I will be. I'll be trying to fill his formidable shoes. <laughs> um, but, uh, very excited about seeing you guys again tomorrow. Uh, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thank you all, and uh, we'll see you, well, Katie will see you tomorrow. Bye. Bye.